We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're walking through this in the month of July. This week and next week we'll conclude it. Uh, so I'm uh, thankful that uh, the Lord has written this unique book. This book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible is in among a number of other books called the wisdom books of the Bible. So Job, uh, Proverbs, Song of Song, the Psalms, um, all of those books are part of this section called Wisdom Literature, which is all about uh, the fear of God. There we go. And uh, all of these books speak about the fear of God. And when you think of the idea of fear of God, it doesn't necessarily mean being afraid of God. I want to be careful. Some people say, well, it doesn't mean at all being afraid of God. Well, it's very close to being afraid of God. And the way I describe it, if you want to think of a, a, a visual picture of the fear of God, uh, and I, I've used this many times, so I'll use it again. It's the experience when all of our kids uh, arrived at the Grand Canyon, got out of the car, and went to the edge of the Grand Canyon and stepped back for half a second and said, whoa. And that's what, when we think of the fear of God, it's supposed to provoke that kind of thing in us. We're, we're captured by the wonder of God. We're also captured by the otherness of God. Uh, sometimes it's called the holiness of God. The holiness tends to be kind of one of those religious terms that doesn't go anywhere. So when we, we speak about the fear of God, we mean that we're, we're captured by the fact that God is so different than us, so wholly different than us. In some ways, we're like him, but in other ways, he's so wholly, H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different uh, than, than us. Uh, and so we speak about his otherness. We're also captured by the mystery of God. The fact that just when we think we have God figured out, he does something that really messes with us and messes with our understanding of him. And that's what these wisdom literatures do. The, these different books, they, they draw out for us the wonder and the otherness and the mystery of God in order that we would yield our lives to God. That we would entrust our lives to the only one who's capable of dealing with them. Now, if Proverbs, which is one of the wisdom books, if Proverbs is the road signs uh, if, I, if I can use that metaphor, Proverb, uh, Pro, the book of Proverbs is like a bunch of road signs. Don't go here, wrong way, uh, you know, here's the speed limit. It's fairly straightforward. Ecclesiastes are the orange cones of life. Ecclesiastes is getting stuck in traffic. Yes, God wrote a book about that. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is about reality, the reason you have those great roads is because someone repairs them. And guess what? After a while, they decay, and we repair them again. And guess what happens? They decay, and we repair them again. And so if you want a road that you can travel on with road signs as to where not to travel, you also need to realize you're going to get stuck in traffic at the same time. It's part of reality, and that's what Ecclesiastes do, does. And Ecclesiastes is not a pessimistic book. I do not believe Ecclesiastes is what life is like without Jesus. It's what life is like, period, whether you have Jesus or not. Now, Jesus does make a difference, and we're going to see that today for sure. But the reason God gives us a book like this is because we instinctively, we naturally are addicted as human beings 
Ever since mom and dad ate of that first tree, we are addicted as human beings to try and turn this heaven-hellish place into paradise. Again and again and again and again. And Ecclesiastes delivers us from that addiction. It helps us not live a life where we're denying reality, escaping reality, or not factoring in reality. That's why I like to say that Ecclesiastes is this wonderful book about enjoying life, not mastering it. In a fallen world of exhausting uncertainty, the way forward is to fear God by finding contentment. Enjoy life. That's the phrase in Ecclesiastes. In God's providence, in the way God orders things, even when he orders and ordains things in a way that just seem contrary to his character and very much not what we want. So, there are two topics that we're going to come to this week and next week that are so disturbing to our sunshiny lives that they ought to prove the point that I'm making that we instinctively like to deny reality. So you ready for these really heavy terms? Here we go. Two topics. Injustice and death. Ecclesiastes says a lot about injustice and death. Today, we're going to talk about uh, injustice. So if you have a Bible, look at, with me at Ecclesiastes 3.16. We will be spending our time in 4 quite a bit, but Ecclesiastes 4 or 3.16 says this. Moreover, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I saw that under the sun, meaning everywhere in the world, in the very place, this is the idea here, in the very place where you should expect to find justice, there's wickedness. In the very place where you would expect righteousness to be practiced, there was wickedness. Even there, that's the emphasis, even in this place, it turns out there was wickedness. And so chapter 4 begins this way. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Power and wealth. Power and wealth. They do something to us. We have this tendency to think that what we have is mine. I earned it. I have a right to protect it. I have a right to use it uh, as I want to use it. Uh, but we all know that the tendency of power and wealth is that we hoard it and then we covet it. Instead of power and wealth being given to us to distribute it at sacrifice to ourselves, we hoard and cover it. And there are many examples of this uh, throughout the Bible. Let me just give you a couple uh, classic statements here back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel wanted a king. I mean, all the other nations had a king. They had a different system where God was king, and then there was this sort of these judges and other things underneath them. And so in 1 Samuel 8, uh, verse 10, Samuel, the prophet, tells them, okay, let me tell you what it's going to be like. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war. 
and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants. He'll take the very best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work and so forth and so forth and so forth. You want a king? Okay, guess what's going to happen when you get a king? That king is going to have a hard time controlling his power. And then in the book of Amos, many, many years later, when these prophets are speaking, uh, they, uh, we hear this, this testimony of what has happened to the very place, the very place we should find righteousness. Amos chapter 5, the very place where you'd expect justice to be dispensed in this place the, the, known as the gates of Israel. Um, it was often the case in these walled cities that they would have a series of gates uh, so that when the enemy came in, if he broke through the first gate, there would be another gate. Well, in these gates, they were covered over. They were in a hot environment like the desert. These gates were basically a place where uh, courtrooms were because it was shady. And it, was, it was cool in there. And uh, so right at the entrance of this gate were these courtrooms. And this is where the people who were experiencing injustice would go to God's rulers to find justice, to which Amos says, you're hated, those of you who rule in the gates. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Why? Because, verse 11, you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain for him. You have taken those taxes, you built for yourself houses of hewn stone, well, you're not going to dwell in them. You've planted these pleasant vineyards for you. You've extorted the people when you should have been giving them justice. And God goes on to say, I know of your many transgressions. And Jeremiah says the same thing in chapter 22 when he speaks about the fact that uh, God's very people who should be dispensing justice have been dispensing injustice for so long that they now will become the object of injustice by other nations. Our Proverbs 13, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit food, but it's swept away through injustice. And these aren't just Old Testament ideas. In James chapter 5, James warns his readers, those of you who, have, who are withholding wages from your workers, meaning you're underpaying them, and you're making yourself wealthy he says you are fattening yourself for slaughter ian proven who writes a commentary on ecclesiastes says wealthy the wealthy and powerful often escape justice because they are the ones who control it i want you to notice something else in chapter uh, four verse one though and this is where we differ from all the oppression talk in our, in our world that's very popular today. The Bible says something very different about it. Listen to this. The second line of verse 1. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And guess what? And there was no one to comfort them as well. This is where the Bible always throws us for a loop because it breaks the stereotypes in our world of in our world, there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of people that are oppressors. They have all the power and they're 100% evil. And then there's the victims of injustice. They have no power at all. 
and they're 100% innocent, to which the Bible says it's neither one. You see, both the oppressors have no one to comfort them and the people being oppressed have no one to comfort them. Why is that? Well, because the problem is this. Power and wealth are not evil. They expose the evil in us. And for those of you who don't know, we'll call that the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it was the problem, wasn't it? Even the most supposedly innocent of them had a problem when he had this ring in his hand for too long. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. I saw that all toil and all skill in work, please notice the word all, come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after win. Now, there's another kind of folly. Verse 5, the fool who doesn't strive after win, he just destroys himself. He eats his own flesh. Both are wrong alternatives here. And the idea that he's getting at is, we are, as human beings, by our, by our very nature, prone to injustice. That's the idea here. Again, Ian Proven says this, In pursuing out of envy the neighbor above us on the ladder, we, ine we inevitably step on the head of the neighbor below us. Now, I do know this. When the Holy Spirit enters your life, when you open your life to King Jesus... Yes, you are a new person, and that new person loves justice and despises injustice. In fact, it sees injustice like never before. Yet, nonetheless, I, I suspect every single one of you here who know, know Jesus would, would uh, testify to this, and if not, I just want you to know right now you're wrong. <laughs> here it is. Yes, the Spirit of God gives us a desire for justice. It makes us hate injustice, but it's a battle, is it not? And are there not many times when we succumb and fail and give in and become ourselves uh, dispensers of injustice? It's a battle we lose too frequently. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a beautiful quote. You may have never heard of him before. Uh, about 100 years ago, uh, uh, he spoke out against communism. He eventually got in trouble because he wrote some things against Stalin and wound up in the gulag, and the gulag were labor camps where lots of people died, and he, he managed to survive the labor camps. He came out, he wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago. Now, you would think if there was anybody that was a victim of injustice who would have despised communism with all of his being, and, and when, he, when he got out and finally got free to write, that's what, that would be the great evil that he wrote against? If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Ecclesiastes isn't just some diatribe on injustice and how we need to get on the train and do something about it. It's about accepting reality. Before you even think about the injustice out there, you need to think about the injustice right in here. And so, when we come to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, 
And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than he, than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been. And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Do you ever want to scream out in fury at the injustice out there? Russia's invasion of Ukraine. CEOs and celebrities. And athletes, some of whom make obscene amounts of salary at the expense of others, making it possible for them to make those obscene salaries. Men and women, moms and dads, who are permanently mutilating their children in the name of identity, being supported by the medical establishment and our very own government, who if one parent decides that this is wrong, that's the parent that will be persecuted. The number of African Americans in our prison system, the disproportionate amount of them, what we're doing to our planet, those are just some of the big obvious ones, let alone the small things that happen in our own backyard. Do you ever want to scream out in fury at all those things? Or do you ever become so discouraged because you feel so powerless, because you can't do hardly anything about it, and what you can do doesn't seem to do anything about it as well? Elijah felt that at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings. Jeremiah felt it at one point in his ministry, and God had to kind of rebuke him and put him back in order. Jonah didn't even want to preach to the Ninevites. They were so full of injustice when the whole problem in the book of Jonah is that Jonah's heart's full of more injustice than the people he's preaching against. Habakkuk wonders what God is up to when he takes a nation 10 times more evil than Israel to fix the injustice in Israel. It's a problem. Or better yet, have you ever probed injustice long enough to discover that though you are miles removed from some of the problems of injustice in the world, your very lifestyle is most likely contributing to those very injustices? Just take a look at the label on your clothing when you go home and do a little research. So how do we live... How do we fear God by living with this tension? <clears throat> that we want to fight our tendency to contribute to injustice while at the same time recognizing we cannot eliminate injustice. And Ecclesiastes is a beautiful book to answer this question. Here's reality and here's how to live fearing God in the midst of this reality with injustice. The first thing I would suggest is that we enjoy our work rather than working to gain. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. <clears throat> After talking about injustice for several verses, he says, So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So what do I mean by this, to enjoy work rather than working to gain? Well, by enjoy, I mean find contentment in whatever work God has given you to do. Even if it's something on the surface you don't like, find a way to find contentment in that work. Instead of working for gain, we have a great tendency, particularly in the West, to work for gain. We work, for example, to um, get ahead. 
Uh, we work because we don't want to live on such a tight uh, amount of income. Uh, we work because it makes us have meaning in life and purpose in life. It makes us feel important depending on what kind of work we do. Some kind of work doesn't make us feel important. Tim Keller has written a book called Every Good Endeavor. It's all about the biblical view of work. And he says, for many of us, being productive and doing becomes an attempt at redemption. By the way, that's not a good thing. <clears throat> that is, through our work, we try to build our worth, our security, and our meaning. And that is not what work is for. Work is not to feel good about yourself, to build security and meaning. Some of us are so focused on chasing the dream that we never catch and that we never keep when we do catch it, that we're missing the smaller, better gifts that God has wrapped up for us to unwrap in our day-to-day -day lives. When work is a means to gain, meaning when work is primarily about getting for myself or for others something more than food, clothing, and shelter, when that's the main reason I'm going to work other than just the bare minimum things that I need, we can unintentionally and unknowingly in that attempt to try to gain more contribute to the injustices in a world where there are more kids than there are toys to play with. We contribute to this competitive, comparative lifestyle. But God has a purpose for work that can bring justice to the world and cause us to rejoice. Again, Tim Keller, he says this, the question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. The question must now be how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? So work would be kind of like, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give myself a ransom for many. What if work was all about serving others and making that possible? So work being a means to enjoy, that's how we enjoy our work, if we see it as a means to bless others rather than ultimately a means to bless ourselves. There's another reason, and that is we need to accept our supposedly unequal lot in life. Ecclesiastes 5, the very last part of chapter 5, puts it this way. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. That's God's appointment to you is to enjoy whatever it is that God has assigned for you. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Wow, what would it be like to savor what I have rather than to be, have a voracious appetite for what I don't have? <laughs> to find enjoyment in, the, to uh, in uh, the power to enjoy them, verse 19, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. What a gift of God. That's my translation of that. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 8, verse 14 says the same thing. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. 
So what's the solution? Next verse. So I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. We need to accept our unequal lot in life. How many times do we allow ourselves to go down that dark alley? It's just not fair. It's just not fair. And it probably isn't fair, by the way. (laughs) Uh, And then we wind up becoming, out of that very sense of unfairness, a contributor to the very injustice that's making life so unfair because we allow it to get a hold of our heart. Chapter 4, verse 6, puts it a different way. Better is a handful of quietness, contentment, than two hands full of just getting more and more and fighting more and more for the place that you rightfully think you deserve. (laughs) And by the way, quietness, this kind of quietness, this kind of contentment that Ecclesiastes talks about, it's absolutely impossible without community. Read on to verses that are usually used for weddings incorrectly. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and unhappy business. Two, however, is the idea, are better than one. They have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls And has not another to lift him up. If two lie together they keep warm. But how can they keep warm alone? And so forth and so forth. A cord of three strands eventually it will say. Is not quickly broken in verse 12. We need a family. To resist the gravitational pull. Of a life that is addicted to striving. That's the short answer. To what Ecclesiastes 4 is saying there. Without a family, you're just going to be sucked down that toilet bowl of striving. And that's this three-strand biblical community is the local church. It's this stunning, judgment-free zone uh, where what you do and what you have is appreciated by everyone, not measured by everyone like it is in the world. Where, I, where our identity orbits not around who I am and what I do, but our identity orbits around us and Christ's kingdom. That's what this community is supposed to be. And finally, uh, don't underestimate the power of living justly in private when you lack the power to overthrow justice in public. Turn to 1 Peter 2 if you've got a Bible there to the passage that Jordan read for us this morning. Uh, In fact, I think I'll put it up for you here. 1 Peter 2, this is 12 through uh, 19. Uh, There are times when we can't eliminate oppressors in life, but we can carefully and strategically live justly in a world while we wait for justice. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning really in verse uh, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That was Peter's way of saying unbelievers. Keep your conduct among people who are not part of the community of Christ 
Keep that conduct honorable because it has power. When they speak against you as evildoers, and by the way, that's happening more and more with frequency just because of the views that are held by biblical Christians. They will speak against us as evildoers. Don't be quick to defend your position necessarily, uh, but instead, live your good deeds in front of them. And as a result, verse 12, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation means when Jesus comes. And how will they glorify God on the day when Jesus comes? Well, I think your good deeds will have a converting effect upon them. They will actually join you and be part of that eternal family. In the meantime, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. When the government asks you to do something, unless it is a bold-faced, direct disobedience to Jesus Christ himself, quietly and from your heart, do what they tell you. That's as clear as day right here. And by the way, the emperor had a lot more power than democratic governments, uh, or, or democracy anyway. Even to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Do not underestimate the power of living humbly and justly in this world. Live as people who are free. You are, by the way. You are not, the government does not own your soul. But don't use that freedom, as it goes on to say, as a cover-up for evil. Instead, serve God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, even servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Wow. And by the way, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust ones. For this is a gracious thing. Please notice verse 19. Because uh, as I'm going to indicate here on this slide, verse 19 connects right back to verse 15. This is the will of God, verse 15. By doing good, you will silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the power of living justly. Verse 19, this is a thing of grace. That's how I see verse 19. When mindful of God, not of the people you're having to serve, not even the terrible people you're having to serve. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There's great power in this. And by the way, the, you belong to a family history that is rich of peop, in people who have, at, at the expense of their own lives, been a voice for the voiceless, have uh, stepped in to abusive situations and made a difference. You can go all the way back to the midwives uh, who rescued Moses. And, and had they risked their own lives to save these babies that Pharaoh commanded to be killed. Did you know that in the history of pediatrics, yes, I read the history of pediatrics at night uh, before I go to bed. <laughs> no, I've never read the book at all. I just was stunned to find this quote in the history of pediatrics. The Council of Nicaea, which was a big Christian council that came together in 325 AD and decided a whole bunch of big doctrinal things like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit type stuff. But you know what else they did? They decreed that in each Christian village, a shelter for the sick, the poor, and vagrant should be established. Wow. Where's ours, by the way? Where's the one that we have established? 
And by the way, some of these became asylums for children because mothers, it was very uh, difficult for women who were poor uh, to keep their babies. And so they would often abandon them in the woods and all over the places. And so that's one of the reasons why they had these, uh, uh, these um, asylums made for children. But did you know that for the next 250 years, every time the Christian church met in a council, they reestablished that order? Harriet Tubman was a Christian who got all kinds of people out of slavery, right in our own backyard, by the way. Uh, today, the International Justice Mission works is a Christian organization that works with human trafficking all around the world. We have a long, rich history of all of these kinds of people who have basically quietly lived lives of justice in a world of injustice. There's one last point that 1 Peter is going to point us to, and it's a perfect point to bring us to this place of taking the bread and cup this morning. So before we get there, I want to invite the fellow serving communion, the worship team, well, really just Peter this morning coming up. Uh, but then also um, those of you who are here today and know Christ as your Savior and King, uh, this is your table as well. I invite you to come up today to the center aisle, take bread and cup, and then in, after we all have bread and cup, I'll lead us in taking it together. There is uh, something about this celebration of bread and cup, though, that should speak to injustice like nothing else. It tells us that justice wins. Jesus Christ came to this world, among other things, to put an end to injustice forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Now, we know because of this table, there's more to the story than that, right? However, one thing that this says, the book of Hebrews chapter 9 says, it's appointed for everyone to die and then comes judgment. So I would put it this way. There is a courtroom in which you and I and every other human being will be found one day. A courtroom in which every single act of injustice, both known and unknown, will be punished will be accounted for. Every single act of injustice, every oppressor will be tried. And it really comes down to this. Will it be Jesus who's tried and punished for our injustice, or will it be you? We come to this table today because even the very act of walking up here, we are saying, God, I'm a contributor to injustice. But you have gladly paid for every injustice of my heart. Every injustice will be punished and someday there will be a world of no injustice at all. And that's what we celebrate as we take the bread and cup together. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, if I had kept on reading a few moments ago, it goes on to say this, 
What credit is there if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? What a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called. You've been called to what? Let me just read it again. You have been called to suffer unjustly. And this is a gracious thing. If when you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that's an injustice. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin while he was being treated unjustly. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't He didn't react to injustice with another injustice. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to the one who basically says, quiet, justice is going to win. And so today, we come to the one who bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed for we were straying like sheep but now because of him have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls so let's pray father we thank you in grace for all that you have done in christ Here we are with all of our injustices and here you are with all your payments for our injustices and here you are at the cross through the death and the life and the resurrection of your son, our savior and king saying to us as clear as day that because of that justice will win and injustice will finally and forever be eliminated. We celebrate that this morning. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.